the chair of the Australian Hotel Association famously said, in opposition to my legislation, no one in Sydney wanted to sit in a bar, drink Chardonnay and read a history book. <laughs> 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 Whilst I don't think a lot of people want to do that, many of them put up their hands and said, yes, we do. <laughs> we want to have the choice. Welcome to the Industry Observer podcast, presented by APRA AMCOS and hosted by me, Poppy Reed. For episode six, I went down to Sydney's town hall to chat to none other than Lord Mayor Clover Moore. Speaking from her office, complete with all the trimmings and opulent decor you would hope for, the Lord Mayor talks about the changing face of Sydney's music scene. She also chats about how small venues have drastically changed the industry, the lessons she brought home after living in London, and how her agent of change proposal will protect live music venues from residential complaints. Lord Mayor Clover Moore, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure, Poppy. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Okay. So I thought that we would start with a little bit about your formative years. Uh, can you tell me a bit? <laughs> You're always of trying to get me to talk about my <laughs> private life. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I hope it's not getting going to get too private for you. But can you tell me about where your love of music and your support of the industry came from? I mean, was there a lot of music playing in your house growing up? Yes, yes. We, we had um, music playing the whole time and it drove visitors mad. <laughs> a bit louder <laughs> used then. To turn the record over and keep playing. <laughs> um, and I, I, I still like to have um, music playing too, depending on the mood, whether it's classical or jazz or pop. So what kind of music was, were you playing back then? Was it your family's taste that kind of informed? I, I, I think you do, ha- you, you do have your family's taste till you sort of move into your... Um, Adolescent years, don't you? Can you remember some of those records? I, I think it would have been jazz and um, and and musicals, um, in terms of um, uh, light music, and then um, we 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 had all the all, all the classical records too that we played regularly. Yeah. So, what were you? What were the first few bands that you really got onto? The first record that you purchased yourself? I suppose. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Or the, I had. That's like so interesting because usually you're one or the other. Yes. You're a fan no, of one I, or the I, other. I, I love both actually, and um, Little Red Rooster and Walking the Dog were two of my favourites. Um, and I know that you also used to sneak out of home to go to King, to gigs in Kings Cross. Yes, that no one ever discovered that. It was really quite extraordinary. Um, I had louver windows in my bedroom, and I used to remove the glass and climb out. And and and, um, and I, I can't remember who drove us, but um, I was with a group, and we we would go to um, uh, a, a club in the Cross and listen to people like Cole Nolan and uh, Judy Bailey, and um, and it was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> Quite an expedition as well, removing glass and everything. Yes. Yeah, that's brilliant. And your family never found out. No, no one ever found out. It was really quite extraordinary. That's brilliant. Yes. Your own little secret. And mom. I don't even think I've told them to this day. <laughs> <laughs> the best kept secret. <laughs> yes. I love that. Okay, and then how did you go from then studying to be a teacher to being elected to South Sydney councillor? Oh, I guess it was uh, an unplanned uh, child and living in London, um, being forced to experience what it was like being a parent in a city where you knew no one and um, uh, and um, Peter was away for long hours. He was an architect working on the Barbican and, um, and 
setting about, you know, um, looking after a child in, a, in, in that sort of environment. And, and I found that there was terrific support, you know, in terms of wonderful parks and, and um, uh, creches and, and it was quite possible for a stranger living in London to have a, you know, a normal civilised life with a young baby given that I knew no one. Um, so then we came back to Australia and um, we, we'd been away for about five years and we knew we didn't want to live in suburbia so, and, and so we could uh, afford to buy a little house in Burke Street, Redfern, long before Redfern was discovered. And um, having done that, I then looked about me to do the same sorts of things. Um, I, I then had, had, had Tom, so I had a three-year-old and, and a baby, a month-old baby, and uh, found that there was nothing. You know, the parks were really terrible and there were no creches and there was, there was no support for, you know, a young mother. And um, that was um, a fairly shocking wake-up call. And um, so I thought about trying to improve things and um, I started a little group of, of, um, to try and get something done about the parks. We called ourselves the East Redfern Community Concern because we didn't want to sort of threaten the council and think we were a radical resident action, action group. Uh, and, um, you know, starting to lobby the council and lobby the state member. And I just found no one was interested. And I was truly shocked about this. And, and I was truly shocked also that it was a great little inner city area with, you know, very large Greek community sitting on upturned milk crates at night. So there was wonderful street life, which was terrific. But, you know, real neglect, real ugliness, you know, um, mutilated trees, asphalt footpaths, asphalt parks, barbed wire, cyclone fencing, you know, it was just hostile. So I started writing letters and taking up petitions and visiting the aldermen and getting nowhere and three years later I decided to put my hand up and run for South Sydney Council to try and do something about all of this. And so Brilliant. Because no one else would. Well, no one else would. Yeah. I, I did, going through that process, I, you know, I met a number of people and asked everyone if they would run and no one would. So that was when Peter and I said, well, perhaps I should. So, so I did and uh, that was the beginning of my political life. The other thing that really worried me too was that we had traffic thundering down every street. And if you look at the streets of Redfern now, we've got the bike lanes and we've got the nature strips and we've got the trees and it's wonderful. But that, 30 years ago, we didn't have any of that. <laughs> That's so funny. And I, it's so interesting that you say that because I wanted to ask you, well, you're very well known for your advocacy of small businesses, small bars, small venues even. And I wanted to ask you, can you remember what the city was like before you, before the, all those small venues, small bars dotted the city? Oh, it, it was very boring and, you know, people... I mean, one of the reasons why we, we stayed away for so long, everyone at that time went overseas, especially architects. Um, and they went for a year, but we just felt really at home in, in London and travelling, and um, it was our, com uh, our, our comfort zone. And, um, you know, Australia was so, so uninteresting and so unvital, <laughs> so boring. Um, and, uh, and, you know, when, when, I, I was, when I was both mayor and, and, and local member, we had a city talk here and it was about the cultural life of the city and we had Fergus Linehan who was uh, the artistic director of the Festival of Sydney and we had uh, Liz Ann McGregor from the MCA and we had, uh, who, uh, who else did we have? We had a third person. Um, and 
It was Neil Armfield. Oh, it came to you. Neil, Neil Armfield um, said he took a gig to, uh, to Melbourne and they didn't come back. Uh, and they're a band and um, it was because of their small bars and their music scene. And Bob Carr, as Premier, had been promising um, the reform of the licensing law so we could have um, outdoor eating, so we could have um, uh, small bars. And he just hadn't moved on that commitment. And the reason why he hadn't moved on that commitment was that the uh, um, liquor industry were such big donators to both the major parties. And um, they didn't want small bars. They were very happy with the status quo. The Labor Party had given them the poker machines. And um, if you went out at, at that time, you, you went into a pub and there was a huge sports screen and there were poker machines. And if that's what you wanted, fine. But that's not what a lot of people wanted. Um, and um, it certainly wasn't what Neil Armfield's group wanted. <laughs> and so, so that was when I put a, a private member's bill together. And both the uh, coalition and the Labor Party were very strongly opposed. And there was a real upsurge of, of support for um, my um, small bar legislation. And as uh, a result of that, the legislation, licensing leg laws got changed. And so we had the introduction of small, small bars, but they didn't make it easy. Um, every, every step of the way, it was a real challenge because there wasn't a commitment there because of the, um, the power of the AHA, the Australian Hotels Association. And um, the chair of the Australian Hotels Association famously said, in opposition to my legislation, no one in Sydney wanted to sit in a bar drink Chardonnay and read a history book. <laughs> whilst I don't think a lot of people want to do that, many of them put up their hands and said, yes, we do. <laughs> we want to have the choice. Yeah. So, it, and what I did mean envisaging as part of that was, was music, was jazz, was rock, was an opportunity to show artwork, to even have poetry readings, to just do cultural things, quirky things mm -hmm. in small venues that weren't big beer barns. So, that was about 2007, and that's about 10 years ago. Um, and it, the, the change has taken longer than I would like. Yes, we've got small bars, and yes, they're fantastic. But in terms of getting the cultural, live music, artistic opportunities, they, they've, they, they've come and they're coming, but slower than I would have liked. Hmm. It seems like the music industry has been butting heads with pokey machines for some time. Mm. I mean, you know. I, I remember when they were introduced by the Labor Party and um, it was bad enough in the casino, but when they were introduced into hotels, it was such a, um, a death knell for live music, as well as for family life, you know, for people with addiction, having a, you know, poker machines on, on every corner in every pub is just, you know, a really, a really shocking social situation. And, and the fact is we're, we, in Australia, we have not, this is a really interesting statistic, 0.3% of the pop world's population, and we've got 20% of the world's poker machines. That's disgusting. It is disgusting. Yeah. And, um, and it, did, it did kill um, live music. Yeah. Uh, and it still is, right? So, poker machines are exempt from the planning laws yeah. in terms of the lockouts. Mm. And, and um, the casino is exempt yeah. from, from yeah. the lockout. You know, How do we get a, that level playing field in the nighttime economy for creatives? You know, how long is that going to take? 
Well, um, you just have to keep, you know, chipping away at it. Uh, you know, um, I, I was fortunately able to hang, hand, when they passed that legislation to get me out of Parliament, I was able to hand the baton to Alex Greenwich, who's doing a fabulous job in keeping all that work going. Um, but and, and there is now going to be a parliamentary uh, inquiry in the upper house and they're going to be looking into the nighttime economy and, and that's a bit of a breakthrough. Even though the majority of Australians live in cities, it seems that our national party members and, and members from perhaps suburban areas seem to have an awful lot of sway over policy that occurs in this country. Um, and um, I, I think that's um, a depressing fact. And um, it's quite heartening to have a progressive government in the ACT doing, doing good things, and it's quite heartening to have a fairly progressive government in Victoria too doing, doing quite good things in South Australia. But we, uh, here in New South Wales, it's, it's a real battle. It, and it's a real battle to, to get progressive, uh, it's a real battle to get a progressive agenda up but um, there are some ministers who are responsive, and I think Don Harwin as the arts minister is, gets it and um, is sympathetic, but again, he's part of you know, the coalition where the majority don't get it. And so you have to just keep advocating and you have to keep campaigning, and, and that's the reality. It's exhausting, <laughs> being a progressive in Australia just currently. It's, it's, it is. Like <laughs> so interesting you say that it, it could even be a, a quote from you it's exhausting being progressive mm. being progressive I mean well it's it's we're able to do within our ability as a city government we're able to get all our progressive policies up because I have had a progressive team for all of the time I've been mayor and that's been terrific so mm. we're doing progressive things here but you know we um, don't con we, we don't control all the levers so we did our work on looking at the nighttime economy. We had a really comprehensive consultation. Um, we had real confidence about what people wanted. Um, we, you know, put that policy together and advocated to the government. Um, they really weren't listening. Uh, we, there were problems developing, particularly in areas like King's Cross, because of the concentration of venues there and the concentration of alcohol fuel violence there. And instead of um, looking at the causes and what and the solutions and and the causes and solutions were quite obvious. We needed transport at night. They needed to change their licensing system so they just didn't hand over lifetime licenses to their donators, mm. <laughs> to their donors. Mm. Um, and uh, which doesn't happen in other cities. You 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 have a um, a license for a period and it's reviewed and if you, you're not um, performing you don't get it, uh, you don't, you can't continue with your license. Seems you know. obvious. It is fairly <laughs> obvious isn't it? The Industry Observer podcast is presented by APRA AMCOS, a key business partner to Australian creators. APRA AMCOS is committed to leading the music industry towards gender parity and is championing exciting new initiatives and programs in an effort to grow its female membership and to achieve a higher representation of women overall in the industry. The future of music is a diverse and inclusive one. Go to apraamcos.com.au to find out more. So, so there's a concentration of venues. Um, it was very difficult to have any leverage to, to get them to reform or change because they had these lifetime licences and, um, and, and the end result was the sorts of things we saw on Friday and Saturday night in, in King's Cross and, and they absolutely refused to run extra trains, which was really shocking. 
because they're making a lot of money out of the nighttime economy. Mm. And um, so then Barry O'Farrell came in with, with, with a sledgehammer uh, solution, which were the lockout laws, instead of, of, of planning, a, planning, a planned solution, a transport solution, a licensing solution, which would have enabled us to continue to have late night trading, civilised experience, mm. um, uh, a safe experience. And that's, you know, they weren't interested in doing any of that. And they weren't interested, I believe, because of their, um, uh, because of the power of vested interests. And the vested interests were um, big alcohol and the people who donated to the major parties. Mm. So, we, so we developed our, our open policy and our open policy um, had um, some... Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about the nightlife discussion paper as well, but yeah, please, okay. yeah. Well, the, the discussion paper is very much part of that work. Yes. So we, we, um, we committed to our, our, our open policy and um, that was about... What we really wanted was a... We wanted a well-researched, well evidence-based, flexible response that used transport planning, licensing and police. That's what we thought should have happened in King's Cross rather than, than the sledgehammer lockout laws. Um, and um, so the things that we have worked to achieve have been um, the extended train services, um, the renewable or permit licenses, um, relaxed restrictions for live music. Uh, that was a goodie. Yeah, that was a real goodie. Yes, and you know, the, again, it's evidence-based. There, there was so much evidence there that if you were playing live music, um, people weren't drinking as much. You know, so um, and because that was the thing that they were concerned about. Uh, um, we've we've done practical things. We've upgraded street lighting. We've revitalised laneways. We've had a public toilet strategy. We've we've had we've introduced late-night taxi ranks. We've worked with the Thomas Kelly Youth Foundation on safe ambassadors. Um, we've extended our tourist information kiosk. So we've worked to create a safe environment um, for, for people. Um, we also um, have a grants policy. And um, the grants policy has gone towards the Newtown Precinct Business Association and the Global Cities Night Culture Forum that's happening at the moment. Mm. So um, that enables us to do that. Um, we have uh, knowledge exchange sponsorships, which I think are wonderful. They're, they're um, an opportunity to exchange ideas and knowledge. We run late night library programs, like um, there's a terrific late night, the one at Surrey Hills, um, erotic fan poetry. Well, fan fiction and poetry, yes. Erotic fan fiction and poetry at the Surrey Hills Library. Um, we introduced the food trucks. Yes, that's um, great. We um, are, are implementing our live music action plan. We're changing, uh, which includes really simple practical things like changing parking restrictions so bands can stop and unload everything <laughs> without getting booked. That's brilliant. Um, we make our own properties available for people to, to perform and to practice. Which yes, is, the rehearsal space, it's brilliant. Which is, which is really important. Um, we, and we use our planning controls too to... Um, to, to get outcomes. For example, we negotiated through a voluntary planning agreement um, with Greenland, who are a developer redeveloping the former water board site in Bathurst Street. 
and as part of that development we've negotiated five floors of rehearsal space and, and performance space um, for 99 years at a peppercorn rent when that development is completed. So, um, and we're also negotiating down in 200, um, in the area of 200 George Street uh, to, to get creative spaces available for, for um, our startups. That's brilliant. So the opportunities, we're using every opportunity we have. Um, the discussion paper that's, that's out on exhibition now is, is part of this work too and we're keen for people to give us their comments. They can do that up to the 13th of December. And that's really about um, freeing up uh, small business to be able to stay open late, uh, seven days a week in the CBD and, and our village areas and um, to enable cultural and creative activity to happen in unusual places like an art exhibition in a hairdresser's or, or, or whatever. So it's that kinky stuff. Um, and um, we're also, part of that is also addressing the issue of the conflict between residents and music venues. Um, and that's called Agent of Change and that's been successful in other cities and we'd like to see if we can get that working here so that if um, a residential de development is proposed in an area that has a successful music venue, well then the residential development will have to ensure acoustic protection for those um, new residents. Mm. If a music venue is proposed in a in the existing residential area, well then it would be up to the, um, the venue to provide um, soundproofing. So again, they're practical measures, but everything we're doing is to achieve opportunity to, for people to go out late, for people to go out late and have an interesting time um, and, and a safe time. We've also, through this open policy, we want to see art galleries, bookshops, um, stay open late. Our experience is if people have somewhere to go and something to do, um, they can have a really good time without getting absolutely drunk out of their mind, mm. which mm. seemed to be the, um, the aim of what went on in the streets of King's Cross when things got really out of control. Mm. The agent of change one is so fascinating to me. I through my work we went out and we interviewed some people on the street about it and said what do you think this is what the city of Sydney is planning what are your thoughts not one person said I don't think that's a good idea they all thought it was a good idea and we did it over three days that's good yeah that's really it good it was really great yeah um, and so I just wanted to chat about the discussion I paper. don't think any 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 reasonable progressive person living in Sydney would be opposed to any of the things we've got in our open uh, yeah open program because it's all about just making it happen and um, and you know it's it's good for it's it's good for small business, but it's also good for people, you know, uh, it's it's good for the soul of a city. It's it's good for people having an opportunity of places to go, things to do, um, and um, and it leads to a, a vital, interesting society rather than a boring stay-at-home television-watching society. Um, I like to tell a story of um, when I was speaking at at uh, at an international event for Mardi Gras think Mardi Gras before last and I was introduced as the mayor of the best city in the world where they like to tuck us up in bed at 10 o'clock at night and, I, and oh people said, what's this what's this yeah really embarrassing wow yeah, yeah I was at an event um, a while ago and they said it was really hard to get people to come to this event because it's the final of The Bachelor mm. 
See, that's really depressing, isn't it? So shocking. Yeah, it's really depressing. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, have you had much feedback about the nightlife discussion paper? I don't think so. I mean, the thing is, often when you don't have feedback, it means that people are really happy. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So we have to encourage people to give us positive feedback. Mm. When we developed Open, we really went out of our way to get feedback. You know, we we did surveys at two a.m. and we. Um, talked to people on the street, we went to residence meetings, we talked to people in business, we went, went to bars, you know, so we, we went out of our way to get it. And I, and, and I think when you do that, you can feel confident in the outcome. Mm. Mm. We're, we're looking at keeping shops open till 10pm. Well, I know in other cities, people like to go and buy a pair of shoes at 11pm. <laughs> Why you'd want to go and buy a pair of shoes at 11pm? I don't know, perhaps... <laughs> That's because what you can. What time do you finish work? <laughs> That's perhaps because you can, you know. Um, but uh, it's it's interesting listening, and I'm just about to to meet the uh, the nightmare of Amsterdam, talking about the 24-hour city. And um, what else in really interested me in yesterday was he said, um, you know, we we are very well regulated, and what people here have been trying to do is to reduce regulation and red, red tape because we think we're over-regulated. So I'm, I'm, I'll be meeting him very soon, so I'll, I'll be certainly asking him questions about that. Mm. Um, one, of our, one of the points of our discussion paper is that we're reducing regulation by allowing shops to, in certain areas, to stay open late without having to put in development application. Mm. And we think that's, that's a good thing, and we do want feedback on that. But again, people in certain areas might want, it, want shops to be able to stay open even later. Again, it often comes back to transport uh, because a lot of people working in hospitality, a lot of people working in retail are young women and a lot of people still live in suburbia and they need to catch public transport home and um, unless there's public transport running, it makes it very difficult. So transport is an safe transport is a real key to, a, to an exciting city and people having a choice in being able to get around and get to things what is harder to lobby? Um, is it harder to lobby for the creative sector or for, say, better regulation around transport and infrastructure? Well, the cynical answer to that is it's easy to lobby in a marginal seat. It's a, and, and I, I mean... That's not even cynical, that's just a very true answer. And, and I think that's the shocking thing about governments. They seem to be driven by... Um, what will get them re-elected. I think they don't realise a good government might help. <laughs> you know, no, seriously. Uh, and I was in Parliament, you know, as an independent for 24 years and, um, and I've been mayor for, for, um, for 13 years and I think what we do here is you describe as good government. It's, it, it's consultative. When we make commitments, we then honour them. Um, we respond to people. You know, and, and, and people who would normally vote um, progressive vote progressive, like the business community at the last election. They passed that special legislation to get my team out um, and business got two votes and they vote, used their two votes to, to keep a progressive team in because we're doing good things for the city and, and we're not corrupt and we honour commitments, you know. So I, I think whether you're lobbying for transport or you're lobbying for government to at least be even become interested in the nighttime economy. I think that's been one of the issues. 
they're not interested or, or supportive because if they were interested or supportive they would have done something about transport because they know a lot of people wouldn't be able to go to the venues unless there's transport. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you something a little bit fun. Mm. What perks does the Lord Mayor of Sydney get that people might not know about? Well, I get to ride in a sleigh with Santa at Christmas time. <laughs> oh, that's a big one. <laughs> which is what I did last Saturday night, which is pretty amazing because the city <coughs> is full of thousands of little excited children. <coughs> and another perk that I get as Lord Mayor, I took 13 elections and all the hard work, is that when I go down to Customs House and I'm in the Prius, there are um, bollards there that um, you just, at the press of a button, can, can, can be removed. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Lord Mayor, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. This podcast is presented by APRA AMCOS. Did you know, in addition to collecting songwriting royalties for over 90,000 members, APRA AMCOS is dedicated to fostering the careers of music creators through workshops, grants, networking events and international opportunities. APRA AMCOS. They don't just collect, they connect. Go to apraamcos.com.au to find out more.